Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Talk. So recently I feel like I've been making a lot of episodes related to current events, which has been really, really fun and different from many of my other episodes. And this episode, yet again, is going to be related to current events. So by the time this episode releases, the two articles I will be referring to released a little over two weeks ago. So what I want to talk about today is the media and mental health misinformation. I will go into more detail in a minute, but basically two articles came out back to back about mental health that in many ways provided misinformation about the mental health field. Now, neither of these articles were completely inaccurate by any means, but they also did not give a full picture of the situations, uh, which in my mind contributes to misinformation. So today I will be talking about the media and mental health misinformation by using two examples of recent articles that have come out. I'll be discussing the potential impacts of such and at the end of this episode discuss how we can be better consumers of media information on mental health. On March 9th, 2023, the BBC released an article entitled Mental Health Crisis from COVID Pandemic Was Minimal Study. So many people, including myself, were shocked by this article. Many people on social media thought that it was a joke, and there were others that were feeling completely invalidated by the title because they did experience significant mental health consequences from the pandemic. So when you go to the BBC article, which I will link in the show notes of this episode, the article starts by stating, quote, people's general mental health and anxiety symptoms hardly deteriorated at all during the pandemic, research suggests. Most people are resilient and made the best of a difficult situation, end quote. The article wasn't a long one and did highlight some of the study's limitations, which I will get into here shortly. However, the overall message of the article was, quote, this study did not find a significant effect, but the pandemic has affected many people, end quote, which is somewhat contradictory (laughs) to me. So they're saying that the study that they're citing, which they based this title off of, did not find an effect of the pandemic on mental health, but then in the same sentence say that the pandemic did affect many people. So when there is any scientific research article the media reports on, it is important to go to the actual source. This is something I do all the time. I also completely understand that media articles are much more digestible and not everyone has been taught how to read and understand scientific literature. 
However, media articles rarely, if ever, include all the nuance that scientific literature does and provide the information rather in a catchy title that will get more people to read. So thus, because of this, I wanted to kind of go through with you all, not kind of, I actually am going to go through with you all the article that the BBC was referring to and talk about how their catchy title um, and their article in general really missed the mark on a lot of the information that was in the article. So the actual article that the BBC was referencing came out in the BMJ and is entitled Comparison of Mental Health Symptoms Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Evidence from a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of 134 Cohorts. So for those of you not familiar with scientific literature, a systematic review meta-analysis basically means that they have looked at a number of different studies and they are looking at the results of all of those studies. So in this particular paper, it was 134 cohorts, which was from 137 different studies. So first, you don't even have to read past the abstract, which is the, the first part of any scientific research article that summarizes the article, to see that the authors of the systematic review state in the conclusion of their abstract, quote, high risk of bias in many studies and substantial heterogeneity suggests caution in interpreting results, end quote. The BBC article did not mention this caution in interpretation at all, although they did mention most of the studies came from high-income countries. So they did allude to some of the limitations, but I honestly, in all the articles I have read don't think I have ever seen something so explicit in the abstract of an article that the results should be interpreted with caution. So let's break down some of the reasons that we need to take caution when interpreting these results. So first of all, 97% of the 137 studies were from either high income, which was 77%, or upper middle income, which was 20% countries. And then an additional 1% of studies were from a mix of high income and upper middle income country samples. So 98% truly came from high income, middle income, or a mix of them. And then the other 2% were from lower middle income countries. This means that no studies were from low income countries. With regard to specific countries, 52, which was 38% of the studies, were from Europe and Central Asia. 34% of the studies were from East Asia and Pacific, 20% from North America, and 8% from other regions. So only 8% were not from Europe, North America, or Asia. This is important to keep in mind because generally speaking, high income or upper middle income countries have more access to resources. Although the study did not specifically look at this, it is plausible that the impact of the pandemic on mental health was non-significant because the participants in the study had more access to mental health resources. Maybe they were in jobs where they were able to work from home and thus did not face job loss or income loss, as well as naturally having more resources to supports in place to assist with coping and resilience in the face of the pandemic. 
It is also important to keep in mind because it is likely that a number of marginalized individuals were not represented in the study. And we know from other research that the COVID-19 pandemic impacted marginalized individuals to a greater extent than others. Hello, would you like to learn to meditate? Or perhaps you've meditated for quite some time. I started around 50 years ago. As you know, meditation is good for lots, including stress reduction, letting go of anxiety, self-exploration, and ultimately awakening. If meditation or awakening interests you, Check out my podcasts on Awakening Together with William Cooper. All of them are free. Both the description and the link are in the show notes of this podcast. Second point. The authors only looked at general mental health, which when they kind of defined it in the study, um, it was general symptoms or mental health related quality of life. And I want to know, I am not like bashing the authors of this research for not clearly defining it because they were looking at 137 different studies could have defined it differently, but general mental health. So general mental health symptoms, as well as anxiety and depression as outcomes. Those were the only three outcomes. Thus other mental health disorder outcomes, such as eating disorders, which there has been evidence of a substantial increase of eating disorders during the pandemic, or other mental health outcomes that are not necessarily a disorder, such as stress, loneliness, anger, grief, and burnout, were not included, just to name a few. Although the author said they did not include this because few studies reported other outcomes outside of general mental health, anxiety, and depression, we cannot discount the fact that people may have had mental health outcomes that were not captured in the study. Thus, going back to the title of the article, although the claim is not necessarily inaccurate, it would be more accurate to say general mental health symptoms, depression, and anxiety were minimum in high or upper middle income countries. But that article title is not going to draw as many people in as stating that the mental health crisis from the COVID pandemic was minimal. So third, the vast majority of studies, so 76%, focus solely on adults. And 24% of studies included children or adolescents, with no studies solely focused on children. This is also important to keep in mind because although individuals have been impacted by the pandemic, the impact is going to be different for adults and children and adolescents because innately these different populations will face different stressors. So for example, adolescents and children, generally speaking, do not have the same coping skills that adults do. Depending on their age, they may not fully understand why they were not allowed to go to school or see their friends where adults may have experienced stressors like job loss or loss of finances. In contrast, children and adolescents may have experienced stressors like doing virtual school and being taken out of sports or other activities. We also know from research that both domestic violence and child abuse increased during this time, which is going to negatively impact mental health, yet that wasn't encapsulated in the study. 
The fourth point I want to bring up as to why we need to interpret these results with caution is that all cohort studies reported COVID-19 outcome data collected in 2020. Only three cohort studies reported results from multiple time points in 2020, and only one reported results from 2021. So all studies assessed COVID-19 symptoms during at least one time point in 2020 in which most occurred during the first half of the year. We are now over three years into the pandemic, thus we have two plus more years of experience in this pandemic that can be contributing to our mental health. I do want to highlight that I'm no way in criticizing these authors for including studies from 2020 or the one from 2021 because they probably started this systematic review in 2021 and it took until 2023 to publish because that is how scientific research and publication goes. However, when a news outlet like BBC gets a hold of an article like this and disseminates the results in an oversimplified way, they fail to acknowledge that the results are solely from the first year of the pandemic. It will probably be years before we get data on the impact of the pandemic two and three years into it, because unfortunately, that's how long scientific literature takes to get published. So it is very possible, as found in this systematic review, that in high income countries, general mental health, anxiety and depression did not significantly increase among participants in 2020. However, it would be interesting to see if there were follow-up on those cohorts in 2021, 2022, and now in 2023 to see if there are any differences. The fifth point I want to make is although overall there was not found to be a significant impact of the pandemic on mental health, the article did find an impact of COVID-19 on mental health for specific groups. For example, a small significant worsening of general mental health was observed for women or female participants and a small to medium significant worsening for parents. Anxiety symptoms worsened significantly by small amounts among women or female participants and parents. And with regard to depression, the estimated change in general population cohorts increased statistically significant by a minimal amount. Additionally, we saw a statistically significant increase in depressive symptoms by minimal to small amounts in women or female participants, older adults, university students, and people who self-identified as belonging to a sexual or gender minority group. This article also goes on to list a number of limitations to their study, as well as strengths that I won't get into here, but if someone is interested, um, I will link the study in the show notes. Ultimately, this is an important study because it does show that for certain populations in the early part of the pandemic, general mental health, anxiety, and depression did not significantly worsen. And it is important to highlight that many people's mental health was negatively impacted by the pandemic, even though that was not reflected in this article. Thus, the, my takeaway point for this section of this podcast episode is if you came across this article or any other media article that reported on this scientific study and it invalidated your experiences or you didn't believe that it was true based on your own experiences, based on what you have witnessed in your job, etc., know that you are not alone. Many people's mental health has been negatively impacted by this pandemic. 
I have seen it firsthand in my clinical work as well as my personal life as has really any mental health or medical professional, probably any teacher, etc. Anyone listening to this podcast, if you have listened to any other episodes, follow me on social media or know me in real life, you know that I am very science and research oriented. Thus, I do feel it is very important to look at the research and look at the results and accurately disseminate those results. And it is also really important to listen to the lived experiences of people, even if those lived experiences are not reflected in the literature. So like I said um, at the beginning when first talking about this article, what the BBC put out there was not necessarily incorrect because what their title stated was the general findings of the research article. What they failed to include was all that nuance. Uh, They failed to include the disclaimer that results should be interpreted with caution and really just oversimplified the research article. So people are going to click the article because that's what media does that says mental health crisis from COVID pandemic was minimal. Read the oversimplified article that, like I said already, did contradict itself and did say many people's mental health was impacted and most likely be left more confused or people aren't going to believe it and move on. So I know not everybody is like me and wants to read scientific studies, but if you do see a media outlet that is talking about a study, they usually do link it. So click on the link and see for yourself. Even if you just read the abstract, it usually will give you more information than a news media article. So kind of shifting gears, but on the same vein of this media spreading mental health misinformation. The BBC article that I just talked about came out on March 9th. And then on March 10th, a Washington Post article came out, which was entitled, quote, your therapist is on TikTok. Will your therapy session end up there too? So the gist of this article, this was not a research-based article, but it's still related to mental health, was basically stating that therapists who have social media platforms, particularly TikTok, are using what clients share in session as content for their videos. So in their first three paragraphs, the article reads, patients share their deepest fears and darkest secrets within the safe confines of a therapist's office. And increasingly, therapists are sharing versions of those stories with millions on TikTok. As social media plays an ever more central role in society, therapists have taken to online spaces to discuss mental health issues. Many of them share video vignettes that reenact conversations with clients. As a result, more patients are being asked to sign social media consent forms that allow therapists to use behind closed door revelations to inspire online content. So despite opening the article, making claims that therapists are using conversations from the therapist's room for content, the article then goes on to stay, quote, TikTok therapists say they pull video ideas from their imagination or draw from therapy sessions after ensuring that clients have signed consent forms and aren't identifiable. In this article, three therapists who have social media followings are interviewed, and then there are other videos that are linked from therapists who did not give consent for their videos to be used in this article. And I know this because I know these therapists, and I'm going to touch on that shortly. 
So the first individual who was interviewed states, quote, my conversation pieces on TikTok are so ambiguous and open that they could be about anybody. So when I first read this, it communicated to me that although it may have been inspired by conversations that have actually occurred in therapy, it could also be conversations about general mental health that anyone could relate to. So not exactly what this article was claiming in the beginning of the article. The second therapist that was interviewed is my friend, Dr. Courtney Tracy, who explicitly states, quote, I have never made a TikTok based on or inspired by an actual client session. Later in that article, Dr. Tracy gives an example of what a social media consent form could look like for therapists, which spoiler alert is not a consent to use information from sessions to post on social media. The article explicitly states Quote, such forms typically promise that she will not follow back or interact with clients on social media and will never disclose any identifiable information about you or your treatment and never utilize personal situations or disclosures, to develop our marketing or social content. However, the third therapist interviewed Lori Gottlieb explicitly states, quote, everyone who comes into my office knows that as long as their identity is protected, they might end up in a book or a podcast or social media and alludes to making them sign some type of informed consent. So, so far in this article, we have three therapists interviewed, only one of which states she makes individuals sign social media consents that include a section where client consents for their content to be used on different social media platforms. Yet the article is written in a way and has a title that suggests that all or the majority of therapists who have social media platforms are making clients sign these consents, even though most therapists that they even interviewed don't do this. Further, the article goes on to state, quote, therapist code of ethics bar them from sharing information that can identify a client. Still, a client may see themselves in their therapist TikTok, even if the video is not about them, which to me is contradicting everything the article was just saying, because they're claiming that therapists are using information from sessions to post on social media, but then go on to say how our code of ethics prevent us from sharing client information on social media. There is more to this article, but from my perspective, it was kind of all over the place. Also contradicted itself. Also based on the title and first few paragraphs, it made it sound like any or most therapists who have a social media platform are requiring their clients to sign consent forms to use their disclosures as content, which is not happening. So the Washington Post article came out March 10th, and then four days later on March 14th, the morning TV show The View did a segment based on this article. And in this segment, they showed clips from therapists on TikTok, two of who are friends of mine, Lior Gal and Kristen Gingrich. So as a side note, um, I did an episode with Lior on her podcast, Therapist Out of Office, where we go into this more, so make sure to check it out. I will link it in the show notes. But basically, the view used their videos without their consent and framed it as if both Lior and Kristen were, one, using their clients' disclosures as social media posts, and two, make their clients sign social media consent forms. 
first, because I know both these individuals personally and due to the fact that both of them have spoken out about this, both the videos that were shown on The View were about Lior and Kristen themselves, not their clients. Lior and Kristen do what many of us who are mental health providers who are on social media do. We pull from our personal experiences and not that of our clients. Second, neither Lior nor Kristen use their clients' disclosures for content on social media, nor do they have social media consents in which they make their clients sign a form that allows them to utilize their disclosures as content for social media. However, Due to both the Washington Post article and the view segment, people are now believing that not only these specific individuals, meaning Lior, Kristen, even Dr. Courtney Tracy, who was interviewed for the Washington Post article, but also therapists in general are using clients' disclosures as social media content. One of my biggest fears because of this um, is that this type of inaccurate media coverage is going to cause individuals to be hesitant to seek out therapy or those who are in therapy will fear opening up to their therapist because they don't want their de-identified information to be shared on social media. So next I want to talk about what a social media policy and consent form actually is. So just like the BBC article, some aspects of what were included in the Washington Post article were not necessarily incorrect. As it is clear that there are some therapists, like Lori Gottlieb, who do have clients sign informed consents as described in the article. However, that is also not the vast majority of therapists, nor did this article really describe what most social media consents are. So a social media consent or policy is put into place to protect both the client and the therapist when it comes to social media. Things included in such a policy may include explicit boundaries around not friending one another on social media, statements about how social media is not confidential, and that if a client does decide to follow a therapist's public social media, they're not to disclose anything that would break said confidentiality. Um, it might include how social media is not therapy and how the therapist will not engage with the client via comments, lives, DMs, etc. It may also include how any content made by the therapist on social media is for psychoeducational purposes and is not based on the individual experiences of their clients. I released an episode last week on therapist ethics and social media, so if you haven't listened to it, do go back and listen. It is the episode directly before this one. However, in that episode, I outline the American Psychological Association's social media guidelines. And guideline 2.2 states, quote, psychologists are mindful of ethical and legal obligations to maintain client privacy and confidentiality at all times. Although some therapists may include in their social media consent that their de-identified conversations may be used as content, I would personally argue that this is the minority of therapists. I don't personally know a single therapist that has this in their consent form, either one I work with, went to school with, met via social media, etc. So the next thing I'm about to say is just my personal opinion. Um, and there are likely therapists out there who would disagree with me, and that is okay. However, I truly believe that having a client sign a consent that gives a therapist 
the right to use what a client shares in therapy as social media content is unethical. First, it goes against any ethical guidelines of keeping client confidentiality. Even if the client is de-identified, something feels really wrong about using their stories without their name or information, especially if the client would be able to identify it as their story. Second, even if legally a consent form covers a therapist, I would argue that there is an innate power differential between a client and a therapist, even if we wish there was not. Clients look to therapists as experts, and thus some clients may feel obligated to sign a consent form even if they do not feel comfortable with it, especially if it is the first session. Third, although not all therapists on social media, and probably not the vast majority of them, honestly, are making money from social media, there is a chance that there is some type of financial gain, or it might be some other gain such as content engagement, exposure, media interviews, book deals, etc., from making this content. Thus, if a therapist is making their client sign a consent in which they can use their disclosures as content, in my perspective, they're taking advantage of the client and using their stories for financial or other types of gain. I also want to note that there might be some people who do not care if their therapist shares information from their session on social media, especially if it will help others. However, the assumption should not be made how an individual would or would not feel when put in this situation. So as I'm wrapping up, I know these are two somewhat different types of issues that happen back to back, but both speak to this idea that the media can easily misrepresent mental health information. In both, we saw titles that are clickbait, meaning that more people will click on the article and read it because it is enticing. In the BBC article, we saw a title that was vague and lacked nuance, and although it did not misrepresent the findings of the article in totality, it also failed to provide the nuance that the BMJ article did, and most importantly, failed to mention anywhere that the results should be interpreted with caution. Similarly, the Washington Post article had a title that was really catchy and would get people to read but failed to really share what a social media consent form is and created this false narrative that the vast majority on therapists on social media are making their clients sign consent forms to use their personal stories to make social media content. Both of these articles speak to how important it is to go to the source of the information and question what you read on social media or on any media outlets or watch on media as we saw with the view both articles did include some truth but also failed to include the whole truth which shows how easily the media can skew information i have already seen so many comments responses etc on both of these articles and from the view segment that reflect how easily the media can influence the public's perception and how quickly people take media as truth. As I have already stated, I'm also concerned about how this will impact people's mental health and the likelihood that they seek out therapy. Seeing the title from the BBC article may make people whose mental health was negatively impacted by the pandemic feel like there's something wrong with them, further contributing to worsening mental health. 
Seeing the title of the Washington Post article may dissuade people from seeking therapy themselves because they don't want their information to be blasted on social media, or it may cause them to distrust the field in general. The purpose of the media is not only to get information out there, but to also get engagement. Thus, media writers will make titles that get these things, get people to read, and they will write it in a way that gets people to comment, engage, and share, even if it's not the full truth. If you are listening to this and you are in therapy or you are considering going to therapy and are concerned if your therapist will use your content as social media, ask. If there's not an explicit social media policy, ask if they have one. Since I work for a hospital, I cannot make my own social media consent. Um, However, my hospital does have a social media policy. Also, working with teens, social media discussions come up frequently, and I will talk to them about not friending me on social media. If they come across my social media, um, we talk about how they can follow but not engage, how I'll not follow back, respond to comments, DMs, etc. on social media. At the end of the day, it is important to be a critical thinker when it comes to media, not just regard to social media content, but anything you consume. So seek out additional sources, find the original source if possible, discuss with other people who may have different perspectives. The media may be reporting accurate, objective facts, but it is also likely that there is some misinformation, whether intentional or not. Thus, if you have questions, ask. If you think something doesn't seem right, lean into that gut feeling and seek out other information. It is so important to be a critical consumer of any information you receive through the media or otherwise. So in conclusion, as a psychologist who is very research-oriented, the BBC article upset me. As a psychologist who also creates content on social media with the sole purpose of providing psychoeducation, destigmatizing therapy and mental health, and humanizing therapists, the Washington Post article and the subsequent view segment upset me. There is going to be bad science out there, and there's going to be bad therapists out there. I'm not denying that. And media coverage that does not accurately reflect scientific literature or what ethical therapists are actually doing does a disservice to the field as a whole. So thank you for joining me for today's episode. I hope it was informative. Even if you were not aware of these instances, I hope you learned something or will think about these things when reading about mental health in the media. Links to anything I referenced in this episode will be linked in the show notes for you to check out yourself. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe and send this episode to somebody you think may enjoy it. Thank you as always, and I will see you in next week's episode of Psych Talk. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.